Thanks for tuning in. I'm Hayden Ludwig. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we expose the left-wing groups attempting to gerrymander America. This is the Influence Watch podcast. The 2020 census may be a few years away, but as some have already noted, the 2018 midterm elections mark the unofficial start of the redistricting season, when the Census Bureau apportions House of Representatives seats and states redraw the congressional map. It's a critical time for both main political parties, since whichever party controls state legislatures has the upper hand in drawing those boundaries to benefit themselves, a practice often denigrated as gerrymandering. But one group on the left, led by former Obama administration attorney general Eric Holder, is organizing an unprecedented effort to help Democrats take over state legislatures ahead of the 2020 census. We're here to discuss this group, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and what they're planning for the near future. Now, Mike, uh, maybe you want to discuss a little bit, uh, what is gerrymandering anyway? So the way that we elect Congress and state legislatures in almost every state. A couple of the New England states and West Virginia are weird. But is to have one congressman who represents a geographical territory, what's called a single member district. So let's use an example. Let's talk, you know, we can just talk about talk about Virginia. Uh, the, you know, my parents live in live in the town of Chesapeake. Uh, they they have a, a, a member of Congress. Uh, they are in this one district. They vote either for the Republican or the Democrat in that district. Whoever wins the district gets to be in Congress. And I'm all up across the country with the caveat that there has to be at least one congressman from every state. Then you have Congress. The way those districts are drawn and who gets to draw them can have a substantial impact on how the um, on who gets on who gets elected. My parents is an example. Uh, they used to be drawn into a Republican district that elected a Republican representative. Uh, but then after, the, after a court-ordered change because of the Voting Rights Act, they got redistricted into a Democratic district. So now it elects a Democrat. Uh, every, every time the census is taken, also, there has to be the decision because the House is apportioned by population uh, among the states who gets more congressmen, who gets fewer congressmen. And so, and for the, the drawing of districts in a partisan manner is as old as the American Republic. Well, and I would point out, you know, that's, that's really where that, that funny word gerrymandering comes from. Right, it comes from, it comes from the name of Elbridge Gerry, who was... Governor of Massachusetts later became, later was vice president for Madison, I think. He was at the Constitutional Convention, you know, one of the one of the lesser known founding fathers who became one of its more effective one of the early republics more uh, more effective political operatives. Well, and you uh, you had mentioned who, it before who, drew, who his allies, he was a Jeffersonian. His allies in the Massachusetts state legislature when they were drawing the congressional districts for Massachusetts, uh, they realized that there that if they could draw a kind of funny-looking district in most of it. I think it was Western Massachusetts. They would be able to elect another Jeffersonian, and the opponent, the Jeffersonian opponents, the Federalists, uh, their newspaper thought that this funny-looking district looked an awful lot like a salamander, and so we get Gary's name, which has become Jerry, and the salamander that his district kind of looked like. Exactly. 
this is the thing that comes up every 10 years, right? It's it's constitutionally mandated. I believe, con uh, what is it, Census Day is April 1st of every yeah, year. Yeah, April, every... April 1st of the of the year with a zero in it. Um, <laughs> the And that's to determine how many congressmen each state gets. So, you know, Virginia has 11 and Maryland has eight, I think. Well, and you bring uh, up an interesting point, too, that obviously the big thing ahead of drawing these maps is populations moved a lot since the last one in 2010, pop Populations change. You have immigration. You have differential birth rates. You know, U Utah gets a new seat because they have a very high birth rate. And Texas gets a new seat because they have a lot of immigration and also domestic migration. Well, and that's true. I mean, I think the, uh, last reports I saw suggest that Texas could get as many as three seats. Texas, Florida, two uh, seats. Texas could get three. Florida could get two. Oregon, Colorado, looking like they might gain a seat. Uh, and then, of course, because we limit the size of Congress, 435, for everyone who must gain, someone must lose. Yes. Uh, so West Virginia is probably going to lose one of their three seats. Uh, some of the states in the mid in the Rust Belt Midwest, Pennsylvania, Ohio, I think is in trouble, might lose a seat. Illinois might lose a seat. Uh, and as a result, if a district disappears, you then have to readjust all the other districts to make sure that they're equal in population. Yes. And when that happens, you really want to be in charge of the state legislature. Because in most states, there are there are some exceptions. California is an exception. Arizona, I think, is an exception. There is some other body that does the redistricting process. But usually it's the state legislature. Well, and that's that you bring up an interesting point that most of the states that the group we're going to be talking about, the NDRC, is focused on are states that don't have one of those independent so-called independent commissions to draw. Although, although I will say those independent, those independent commissions are a bit interesting. Arizona's uh, in, uh, ostensibly independent redistricting commission in the current cycle, uh, it, the map that they drew is almost indistinguishable from a, a pro-democratic gerrymander. <laughs> well, and that's the point right there. Who's calling the current system gerrymandered? Well, I, I mean, you call it gerrymandered if you're not winning. So Maryland Republicans call the map drawn by Maryland Democrats, which fillets Anne Arundel County uh, in suburb, kind of in between Washington and Baltimore, into about four pieces uh, and packs it in with a bunch of Democratic counties to make sure that there isn't a second Republican elected to, to Congress from Maryland. Um, they call that a gerrymander. Uh, Democrats in Ohio where the Republicans drew the map and packed all the the uh, the Democrats, at least people who as of 2010 were Democrats, in little compact, you know, in compact city-based districts. Uh, you know, they call that a gerrymander. You complain about gerrymandering when you're not the one doing it. And both sides do it diligently and with a level of scientific precision that Elbridge Gary could only dream of. <laughs> well, and you, you highlight the main point of why isn't there an equal clamoring over the word gerrymandering, accusations flying mostly from one side as opposed to pretty equally from both sides. I think we both would point to the roughly thousand seats that uh, Democrats lost from state legislatures all the way to the Congress um, during Barack Obama's presidency. The the weakness of uh, the Democratic Party under the the subnational Democratic, in fact, subpresidential uh, Democratic Party under Barack Obama, put 
Democrats in the situation that they are in. Now, that is not to say the wheel will not turn the other way after the 2020 census. Uh, there, you know, if you look at the public opinion polling, if you look at some of the results from special elections, um, you know, I mean, in Ohio, we just had a special election in Ohio. The Republican usually carries that seat by many points. Uh, I think the former representative Pat Tiberi won his last election against a no-name, you know, a no-name, uh, some dude character by like twenty. Uh, wow! The Republican last week won it by one. <laughs> uh, that is an example of one of the dark sides of gerrymandering. If you're the one doing the gerrymandering, that's called a dummy mander. When you've drawn so many close seats that if the national environment turns against you because you are the presidential party and the president is unpopular, for instance, uh, and then all of a sudden all your guys who used to win pretty comfortable 10-point margins find themselves losing by two. And again, this is kind of why I am a skeptic of Democrat whining about gerrymandering now and of the efficacy of gerrymandering as a way to lock in your majority for an indefinite period. People move, populations change their voting behavior, parties change. So, you know, Holder and the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, their, their aim, essentially they saw what the Republicans did after 2010 with a group called the Republican State, Legis uh, Republican State Leadership Committee, RSLC. So much success winning state legislative districts, so much success in the redistricting process, protecting, because you can protect a couple of points, your, your margin, uh, protecting that margin. And they said, hey, we should do that. And now that the Democrats at the subnational level appear to be in the ascendancy, Holder and his committee look like they're going to have the opportunity to make substantial revisions to the congressional districts in the Democrats' favor. Well, and you bring us to to the main point at hand. The, the NDRC, this is, this is the main organizing body for the Democratic Party, for the left, to try and redistrict things ahead of the 2020 census. I mean, the well, bottom yeah, line— I, I mean, hold, one, one moment. You, you have the census, and then you do the redistricting. Unless, unless a court orders you to redistrict, which is what happened in Pennsylvania— when the Democrats took control of the state Supreme Court and the state Supreme Court throughout the congressional map. Well, and you're right to, to the, clarify the, that. So there is some, there, there's sometimes you can redistrict before a, uh, before a census. Uh, in Texas in the 2000s, uh, the Republicans took control of the state legislature. In 2004, the Democrats had already, or in, I think it was 2002, the Democrats had already drawn a map for the 2002 elections and the Republicans decided we're going to throw that map out and we're going to draw our map. Uh, of course, at the time, it was highly controversial because it was Republicans doing it. Uh, and, it, you know, theoretically, sure, if the Democrats took control of, say, Michigan, they could uh, redraw the re try to redraw the congressional districts just for the 2020 election. But really, this is about 2021. Uh, you have the new apportionment, the seats are, the seats are distributed, and now you're drawing the maps blank. Yes, well, and, and that comes to, to the nub of the issue. I mean, the NDRC has described itself as the strategic hub for a comprehensive redistricting strategy. The idea, I think, being pretty clear here, we shouldn't have multiple Democratic organizations trying to do this. We need to concentrate power and coordination in one organization. Right. It, to 
<clears throat> and it's to organize it within the party structure. Uh, again, the Republicans did something very similar during the Obama years with the Republican State Leadership Committee. Uh, it was during the Obama during the Obama years fantastically successful. Uh, you said, you know, you as you pointed out, the Democrats lost a, a thousand seats from something like thirty chambers, something like that. So, yeah, you know, and and offices up and down the ballot. That seems to be kind of how our politics are developing, where if you're the presidential party, you take a bath at all other levels. Sure. Sure. Well, let's let's shift over and talk about um, Eric Holder, who is who's the chair, and I would say probably the the founder, if not the he's, the, the, he's certainly the face. He's certainly the face of it. Yes. And the and the, um, the 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 figurehead's not really the right word because he actually does do stuff. But sure. But the the rallying point. Yeah. Yeah. The brainchild master or something. <laughs> something like yeah, something like that. So let's talk about he he's he's um notoriously scandal ridden. I would call him a controversial figure. Um, sure. The, the probably the most notable scandal controversy involving Holder was the uh, when he was attorney general, there was a Department of Justice program that involved sending fi- you know sending firearms into the black market and then not really tracking them. Yeah, that was called uh, Fast and Furious. Yeah, the o- operation Operation Fast and Furious. Uh, and that was run through the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Yeah, which is a subordinate, a subordinate entity of the Department of Justice, which is headed by the Attorney General. In this case, Eric Holder, in this, should, we yeah, should point and out. In, yeah, and in 2009 <laughs> to 2014, that was Eric Holder. Um, and uh, why this became an issue was because a Border Patrol agent was killed with one of these uh, with one of these guns that had been right. let let go through this program. To try well, we to- should point out to the reasoning behind it. <clears throat> it, it. The idea, I believe, if I understand this right, was was to release tracked, marked weapons that would be that would find their way to drug cartel leadership, right. and that and and that you could know, and that they would know that okay, they're using you know these guys are using this gun to commit these crimes. Yes. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, it's kind, it's kind of not, yeah, it's kind of not obvious uh, that they. That that was productive in any way, uh, and it did get one of our guys killed. Yeah. Um, well, and it, and it led to uh, Holder being held in contempt of Congress in 2012, right? Uh, yeah, Congress uh, Congress was obviously not happy with this. Uh, there was a suspicion amongst Republicans, probably a not unjustified sus- suspicion, that the Obama administration was interested in using the possibility that these guns had gone on walkabout and then been used in crimes as a way to enact gun control. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, the Republicans were not happy with how forthcoming Holder was not being about how this policy was developed. Uh, so the House of Representatives uh, voted him into contempt. With some Democrats, I would add too. It was. It was. I wouldn't quite call it a bipartisan thing. They might be stretching <laughs> got, the terms. The four, but... <laughs> the four rural, got the two rural guys from Minnesota and John Mayer. <laughs> well, and shifting back to him um, as a as a uh, <clears throat> developing leader in the Democratic <clears throat> Party. I mean, there there's even been talk, albeit perhaps not as serious as it might be, of him running for president in, in 2020. But but regardless of that, I think it. it it's fair to say that uh, Eric Holder has emerged as one of those thinking, acting leaders yeah, in the redistricting he's a ma- process. He's a, major, he's a major figure in <clears throat> in the Democratic in the Democratic fold. Uh, <clears throat> has already held one of the major one of the major cabinet offices. Uh, yet you are correct to note that some have suggested that he might run for president. Uh, and obviously now he has this formal position within the party structure. 
running the redistricting effort. So we should talk about uh, a little bit about how the NDRC came to be. Um, it's worth noting that that Holder has made it kind of his mission since he left uh, the attorney general position to target what he calls broken uh, Congress under Republican control, presumably. An yeah, that, that, that's the standard. That's kind of the standard Obama administration complaint about Congress. Now, in 2010, Republicans won a majority of the popular votes cast in House races and won control of Congress. In 2014, they won a majority of the votes cast in House races and won control of Congress. Uh, in 2012, there was a situation kind of like the 2016 presidential election where the total aggregate votes. Uh, were more for the Democrats, but the Republicans won more seats. Okay. That's it. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say the Democrats have a point, but I can understand why they're annoyed. Yeah, the, understandable. The, um, but again, the system we have is the system we have. Our politics are organized on these rules. You know, some Democrats want, you know, complain and say they want proportional representation like Germany has. Okay, Germany has seven parties. Uh, right. There's other thing that it, it's know, a massive the, change. Yeah, it, it's a, it would change how politics operates yeah, if you went fundamentally. away fundamentally from root and branch. If you went away from the single member district, well, yeah, it would fundamentally transform have. America. You might say, but uh, shifting back to fundamentally transform <laughs> politics. <laughs> shifting back to NDRC, so so it's a it's a what we call a, a political action committee, right? A yep. five twenty seven pack. Yeah, it's, tell us more it's about a that party. It, 527 is the IRS category for political parties and things and groups that directly do election stuff. Candidates committees, political action committees like NDRC. The point of NDRC is to elect Democrats. That is its purpose. Whether its purpose is to elect Democrats by supporting them in state legislative can, uh, campaigns so that Democrat state legislators get to write, get to draw Democrat congressional maps and state legislative maps, or uh, to support Democrats drawing the state legislative maps right. to uh, elect more Democrats, or to sue Republicans for gerrymandering too much to elect more Democrats. That is NDRC's purpose. It's in the it, it's in the title, National Democratic Redistricting Committee. <laughs> well, and that's that's an important distinction, right? As a PAC versus a nonprofit, right? It can be openly partisan. As a, as a as a PAC, yes, it can be openly part. It can be aligned with a party. It is supposed to be. That is its purpose. That is the purpose of its organizational category. In a way that, obviously, a charitable organization can't do any electoral anything, and a social welfare organization, a lobbying group, an advocacy group. Uh, they can engage in some electoral activity, but not coordinate with parties and coordinate with candidates. Exactly. In the way that a, in the way that a, uh, a 527 way that a political action committee can. So it's interesting, you know, um, looking into NDRC's history, I mean, it, it, it looks like it was conceived in late 2016 in the lead up to the presidential election that year um, by, by political operatives, both in the Democratic Party, but also in the Obama administration. Um, actually, a few Politico articles launched in um, late 2016, early 2017, made reference to uh, how President, then President Barack Obama was was well versed in what was going on and had actually planned to be more immersed in it after he left office. Yeah, no, they, the, because Republicans were successful at the subnational level from 2010 to uh, 2016, that was a, that was a, you know, like driving with your parking brake on for the <laughs> Obama agenda. Uh, the legislative 
phase of the Obama administration ended pretty much in July 2010, even before the election. Um, and by, you know, and there were no, after Obamacare, you know, and there had been the stimulus before it, there were no major legislative initiatives that the Obama administration was able to pass. They were not able to pass immigration reform. They were not able to pass uh, a uh, environmentalist energy policy in legislation. This is why, again, Obama infamously said, you know, I have a pen and I have a phone. Well, <laughs> problem with pen and phone is that at some point somebody else gets the pen and the phone and they might try to undo everything that you did with your <laughs> pen and the phone. You know, so yes, you have the Paris Climate Treaty, uh, you know, Mr. President Obama. Unfortunately, Mr. President Trump has now made it go away. Well, and there, <laughs> and there you have it. That's that's why we have a Congress. Right, um, you're right. Yeah, right. And that's supposed to, be the, supposed to be the point of a legislature is to have stable, you know, stable policymaking that is you know, ensconced in law. And if you want to see the difference between pen and phone and legislation, you know, the Republicans, entirely unsuccessful in repeating, repealing or substantially constraining Obamacare. That was legislation that passed. We can complain about the process all we like, but that's the same as Democrats complaining about Merrick Garland. The, <laughs> uh, but things like the, the uh, Paris Climate Accords, the Iran nuclear uh, agreement, things that President Obama entered into of his own accord through his, through his own exercise of executive authority. Uh, oh, uh, the Immigration Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, which would have granted legal status to uh, roughly half, I think, the uh, presently illegal immigrant population. Commonly called DACA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, DAP, DAPA. DAPA? There's, yeah, the DAPA, which never went into force, and there's DACA, which is different, but that's... Okay, yeah. that's a good clarification. And President Trump has tried to stop DACA, but he's being stopped by judges. It's all... Yes, very, it's, it's, all very it's outside of it. But, you know, we make the interesting point of the connection to the Obama administration. I mean, it, looking at, at stuff that came out of 2016, we see that that there are about, what, 50 major liberal or left-wing donors who were involved at the first fundraising pitch that was ever reported on what would become NDRC, right? I mean, we're talking about people like then-Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, right, who, who recently uh, left office, and now it's Ralph Northam. Uh, Connecticut Governor Danell Malloy. I, I mean, it goes on big, big labor. I mean, we talk about some yeah. of the groups involved. Yeah, you've got. I mean, all your your government worker unions, AFSCME, uh, National Education Association, the AFL-CIO, uh, some of the uh, left wing pro abortion women's groups, Emily's List, Planned Parenthood, uh, the uh, environmentalists, Sierra Club, League of Conservation Voters. And then your sort of Democratic partisan organs, the House Majority PAC, which is the uh, super PAC for Democratic candidates for the House of Representatives. Uh, what that shows and the involvement of people like Holder and the involvement of people like uh, former Governor McAuliffe and Governor Malloy is that this is a core uh, priority of the, of the Democratic machine. Uh, and, and I think it's reasonable to call it a, to call it a machine uh, going forward into the 2018 and 2020 uh, election cycles, to take yes. control of state, you know, to take control of state legislatures, to take control of governorships, to take control of other legislative, uh, to to litigate against Republican efforts, uh, in order to bring the. Uh, the playing field more into their favor.
Well, and one of the more interesting of them is uh, Organizing for America, which is which is pretty closely aligned. That's that's OFA. Yeah, yeah o- Organizing for Action, which is the Obama Obama's Excuse campaign. Me, in, for Action, yes. Yeah, yeah, it was originally Organizing for America when it was actually the Obama campaign. Obama for America. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Obama yes, for America, yes. Organizing for America, Organizing for Action. It was as, a convenient term. as as uh, <laughs> as they looked to keep the acronym and uh, President Obama's ability to run for re-election was uh, precluded by the Twenty Second Amendment. Exactly. Um, well, and that brings up a point of, of how do we even know OFA is involved? Well, it, and again, uh, it was a it was a Politico article reported, uh, I believe, last October. That, um, if I can paraphrase it, 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 it reported to donors that President Obama was fully versed, but that OFA volunteers would be on the ground, so-called grassroots volunteers, yeah, and, and, involved and, in the and, effort. And OFA is one of those social welfare organizations that's able to do electoral politics stuff in addition to other stuff. Um, and, and again, of course, it is it is the President Obama's reelection campaign in perpetual zombie form. Well, and this brings us to, you know, who are the people involved in NDRC proper? And it, it probably isn't surprising based on who has funded it and who is involved in, in kind of birthing this idea that obviously we have Eric Holder as the board chair, but we have um, Elizabeth Pearson, right, who is a former Democratic Governors Association um, executive director, if I believe, but various officers from groups um, like OFA yeah, for no, this is a serious this is a serious effort with serious democratic operatives behind it uh, and then the funding also shows that serious democratic interests are interested uh, the American Federation of Government Employees the Federal Workers Union uh, the uh, trend the transit union the uh, some of the big individual Democratic donors, uh, Fred Eichner, yeah, uh, Donald, Donald Sussman, Sussman, yeah, uh, the Stryker fan, the Stryker family um, from Colorado, Martha Samuelson, J.J. Abrams, these people who uh, write the big, people who write the big checks to obviously Democratic politicians, but also uh, to liberal nonprofits. Exactly, and. You know, we should we should highlight the the funding too. Shouldn't surprise that it, this really covers the gamut of left wing or Democratic Party aligned organizations. I mean, not only do you have um, board members and officers and probably funding as well from groups like America Votes, which is a which is a voter mobilization, get out the vote kind of organization, right? I mean, you have funding from the American um, Federation of Government Employees (AFG), right? ATU you mentioned, but also some that may not be immediately obvious, like End Citizens United, right? A Pack focusing on, I mean, ideally overturning the 2010 Supreme Court decision. In reality, kind of another in organizing. Reality, in reality, complaining about it, like <laughs> the, the, the raising money off of right, it, right? Raise, yes. Raising money off of it and complaining about it. It's the standard, you know, with all these sort of tactical, you know, tactical changes that are mandated, you know, that mandated are mandated by. Maybe there's a Supreme Court decision. Maybe there's a legislation. Maybe there's a fluke change of power in a state legislature. Uh, the people who think they're on the wrong side of it spend a lot of time complaining about it because exactly. it's all because again, you know, we all know that it's kind of dirty and a little corrupt. And you know, this kind, you know, this member of the state legislature gets to draw this district that makes makes it even more so than being better for his party is better for him personally. You know, you know this, you know, and with the the. The, the sort of Citizens United donation stuff. It's like, okay, well, you know, all these rich guys are now giving money to all these uh, social welfare organizations that do political stuff. What are they getting for it? You know, it all kind it all kind of smells. Yes. But the traditional old, you know, the old way had its smell, you know, had its issues. The, 
you know, pre Citizens United, pre, pre, yeah, pre Citizens United, and pre, you know, pre two thousand congressional redistricting in nineteen ninety two after the nineteen ninety census. Uh, the Democrats in Georgia, this was back when uh, uh, Georgia was still Jeremy Carter's Georgia, still part of the, at the sub-presidential level, the old solid South. Yeah, Newt Gingrich is the exception, not the rule. Uh, well, and they tried to make him not the exception anymore. <laughs> At all. Uh, yes. They filleted his district into, I think, three parts to try to break up his home base so that either he would lose re-election or not get the nomination. Huh. Uh, and they failed, and two years later he was Speaker of the House. There you go. The... Again, another indication that when, you know, re redistricting, yes, it, it's important, which is why groups like National Democratic Redistricting Committee and Republican State Legislative uh, State Leadership Committee exist. But if the overwhelming change in political preference and political demography, which in, in the late 1980s and early 1990s was Sunbelt, so that's Southern and Western, uh, specifically Southern, suburban, educated, higher income voters were switching from ancestral Democratic allegiance to what would become there for the next 20 years until basically 2017 Republican allegiance. Once that starts happening, you can redistrict all you like, but if the tide comes in, the tide comes in and you can't stop it. Well, and it's part of that bigger trend of population moving south and west. I mean, we we kind of talked about the the, the Sun Belt states. No, I, mean, look Florida. At, I mean, look at Florida. I mean, look at Florida. The the book that destroyed that destroyed American politics. Uh, John Judas and Rui Teixeira's hmm. emerging Democratic majority. The theory is: all right, we're going to have young people, we're going to have uh, immigrants, um, and those two plus the existing Democratic base. And we've we've got it in the bag. And if you look at the poll, you know, at the sort of political polling and the voter registration numbers and all that in Florida, that's not happening. The the, the big theory of you know now is that after the the major hurricane last year in in Puerto Rico, a lot of Puerto Ricans who are American citizens can freely move to the mainland. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of them moved to Florida because there's a, an, an established an established uh, Puerto Rican population and other established uh, Spanish-speaking populations that they can make it easier to blend into into uh, mainland society. Uh, that they were going to come and that that was going to swamp. This was going to be it. This was going to swamp the Republican Party of Florida. This is it's over now. And the polling thus far shows that's not happening. Uh, and part of and part of the reason is. Puerto Rico-based Puerto Ricans aren't as left-leaning as people think they are. Yes. And the other part is that the other way that Florida tops up its population is old people <laughs> moving moving south to retire. Replacing existing <laughs> replacing exi populations. Re re replacing existing, popula yes, replacing exactly. existing populations as they go the way of all flesh. Well, and it's telling you, it's very telling that Florida's to pick up probably two seats they estimate, and while New York's losing one, right, right. a lot of the Northeast states losing one, it, it tells you it, it is it is a senior right-leaning population that's moving down for retirement and getting out of a cold and very your, expensive. Your pension, and <laughs> your pension goes a lot farther in Florida where the <laughs> cost of living is lower and there's no state income tax and than it does in New York City where you have, uh, in addition to an obscenely high cost of living, you have 
obscenely high state tax, and then you have obscenely high local tax, and then you know, it just all starts <laughs> piling up. Well, it's that it's that permanent Democratic majority that's always on the brink of emerging, but never quite actually well, emerges. Well, in after the 2004 elections, it was supposedly the permanent Republican majority. There were books written. There, no, there no. were books written about it. You know what? What the only constant and and kind of the 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 takeaway lesson from re, from redistricting that all the money you put into redistricting will help you for about five years in <laughs> in your you know in your state okay i've got my think let's go to ohio where we just had the special election the republicans excellently expertly in 2011 made ohio elect more republicans than a pure proportional representation would necessarily would necessarily create and then after 2016, the party started shifting their ideology. The um, you know the Democrat you know the a Republican president took office. He's had some problems with some of his associates, and his popularity has has lagged, and it has lagged especially with highly educated voters who don't like who don't like certain things about him, and that's rubbing off now on. Republican candidates and you're expertly gerrymandered, we're going to win this by by a stable, you know, if, if you're getting 60%, that's kind of considered you're a stable, you're a stable incumbent who's good and probably not under threat in the, in the immediately next election. You know, we were going to, you know, that the Republicans are going to get, you know, 60 to two thirds in that district for as long as we, long as the eye can see. Uh, but all those changes happen. People move, people change their mind, different, different issues come to the fore, you know, in 2011, we, you know, the Republicans were all about the deficit and Obamacare, and uh, today it's immigration and trade protectionism. People who liked the first might not like the second, and people who liked the who liked the first or squishy on the second might just stay home. And all of a sudden, your district became competitive. Well, and I, I've never been big on the idea of a, of a bellwether election. It's because ultimately, you don't know why voters go out and vote. Every, every you, you can't get and, into and, their brains. And every district, every population reacts differently. Absolutely. We, you know, uh, and as, as you know, again, as sophisticated as you can be with you know, on this podcast, we've discussed political data before, uh, back when there was that controversy over Cambridge Analytica, and we discussed uh, the catalyst, the Democratic Democracy Alliance. I would bet a very large sum of money that Eric Holder's group, National Democratic Redistricting Committee, are going to be using data from Catalyst or someone like them uh, when it comes time to actually start redrawing constituencies in the Democrats' favor. Well, now, Catalyst being the main uh, uh, yes, being left the, wing, being the left wing being political, the left -wing data political data. Entity. Uh, associated with the Democracy Alliance, which is the big, yes. the uh, guys like Fred Eichen are, are members of the Democracy Alliance, right? Uh, which pulls all the money and just and tells the rich guys like Fred Eichen where the money should go. Well, and looking at the, looking at the bigger picture of NDRC, I mean, wh why does this matter? You have to look at their their tactics because we're we've mentioned that this is the unofficial start of the 2020 fight. Um, in reality, while that's true, we still are looking at 20, 2018 as again, if that word bellwether, but certainly a predictable thing. I mean, ahead of, I mean, NDRC. Well, eighteen, I mean, eighteen twenty, decide eighteen and twenty and nineteen in states like Virginia that are weird and have off your elections. Yeah, uh, decide will draw the maps in 21. Uh, and groups like National Democratic Redistricting Committee, Republican State Legislative Committee will be 
involved in these races because they know what's coming on the other side. But which states would uh, Holder and the NDRC target? Well, you if you think of it in terms of the, the, the good folks at Ballotpedia uh, have a, a term they call trifecta. That's when you control in the 49 states that aren't Nebraska, which is weird, uh, you have a governor and two houses of the state legislature. And Nebraska having one. Nebraska <laughs> has one, and its one is nonpartisan because it's Nebraska, and it's, they had populism. With air quotes, nonpartisan. They had, they had, they had, yeah, yeah, nonpartisan with air quotes, and they, but they had populism back in the 1900s, so that's what happened. <laughs> um, the, if you have all three of those, if you have governor and two houses of state legislature, it's almost like a parliamentary system at that point. You can pretty much do what you want if you're the majority. Uh, so that's a trifecta. Uh, a trifecta, one party can pass on party lines, it's stuff. One of the things you can pass if, on party lines if you have a trifecta and you're not in a state like Arizona or California that has one of these uh, independent, ostensibly independent redistricting commissions is your legislative maps and your congressional map. So the what NDRC and groups like it what NDRC will try to be breaking and what our SLC will be trying to hold are the Republican uh, trifectas and what the NDRC will be trying to gain are new, Democrat, new Democratic trifectas. Well, in other words, it's NDRC is not there so much as a let's defend solidly blue states like New York and, and California. It's an attack dog, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, going more, for, to, it's more to get, it, it's more to gain control of the Nevada governorship. Yes. To gain control of the Colorado State Senate, to uh, gain control of the Virginia State Legislature, to gain control of everything in a place like Wisconsin or Michigan, where Republicans in 2010 and 2014 were able to ride the wave. They'll be looking to ride the wave coming the other way. Right. Well, and, and it's an interesting tactic. I mean, pr traditionally, PACs are associated, rightly, with with funding candidates, right, and funding uh, organizations that fund candidates. In this well, case, and that's and that's kind of one of your Citizens United ish consequences that you have. And again, they they learned from the RSLC that your involvement from the from a national coordinated effort. In state races, both in the legislature and your down ballot, you know, and your kind of your down ballot row officers, your secretaries of state, your lieutenant governors, your attorneys general, that that can be, especially when you're the opposition party, especially when you're the non-presidential party, that can be a locus for friendly policymaking, even in states that would norm that in a presidential year may may be contestable. If you build those local machines, if you build those local operations, ride some, you know, ride some wave because the the opposition party doesn't really care what's going on because they have the they have the presidency and your guys are all mad because they don't like the president. The you know, that can be a way for you to substantially change policymaking. I mean, if you look at some of the Republican victories during the Obama during the Obama presidency, you know, you had the Wisconsin Union fights, you had uh, Michigan going right to work. You had um, the advance through much of the country of uh, the right to the right to carry a concealed handgun. You know these were made. You know these were substantial advances made despite the fact that the president was a Democrat. Yeah, no kidding. No and, kidding. And, and the and 
Holder and the and the NDRC are looking to build an infrastructure so that despite the fact the president's a Republican, that they'll be able to have those victories as well. Well, and you know it, they're kind of starting off that battle with something a little different, targeted litigation. I mean, right now they've got they've got two legal battles down in um, Georgia and Wisconsin, um, essentially targeting maps that have been drawn, throwing them out under the Voting Rights Act. Costs a lot of money. It's expensive, and it makes the the legislatures go back to the drawing board. And I think the idea probably is if we can hold them well, and right. make them it's, continue I mean, it, redrawing. I mean, we can, you know, again, we saw it in Virginia because this was, you know, this was done there. It was also done in Florida. If you can get the federal courts to order a Republican legislature to go back and redraw the maps with one one more district being Democratic than Republican, uh, you know, that's a, that's a free gain. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're the, if you're the Democrats, that's a free gain. Um, now, in fact, it went all in the last term, it went all the way to the Supreme court, whether partisan drawing of legis quote unquote, partisan gerrymandering, partisan drawing of legislative districts, uh, was even constitutional. And it was kind of, th and they kind of threw it out on technical grounds, but didn't, really get to the really get to brass tacks as to whether you know i mean if you get into voting ref voting voting systems reform yeah it's like you can it gets very weird very technical and people's eyes glaze over immediately <laughs> uh you and that's so the, so again the question of whether the current system is is allowable was sort of punted um, and go, again, going forward, the question really, again, I think will be who gets to run the first half of the, who gets to run, you know, who gets control of the process for the first half of the decade. And after the first half of the decade, all bets are off, all bets are yeah. off because people are yeah. moving, people are changing, parties are moving, parties are changing, the world is changing. You can't predict those trends very easily at not, all. Not well. Um, well it's, so it's interesting because, you know, Georgia obviously is a, is a very conservative Republican controlled state. Wisconsin is not. But I would point out too that that's, that's only one example of what NDRC's activities are. I mean, uh, Virginia, where we are, just had a uh, gubernatorial election last year where NDRC claimed it spent about 1.2 million dollars electing now governor Ralph Northam the the Democrat um, so why do they care about that what's their oh, interest because, in because because for, well, for two reasons one uh, the Democrats came very close to taking house of the state legislature which would have given them even more input into redistricting now that house of the state legislature is back up in 2019 the entire state legislature is up in 2019 um, if the Democrats were to take control in 2019 of both houses of the Virginia State Legislature, they would have a trifecta. They would be able to draw their map, send it to send it to Governor Northam, and get the checkmark. Well, that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, right. Yeah, and 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 but even if the Republicans now retain one or both houses, uh, Northam and Virginia redistricting is a a law. You you have to you know it has to have the assent of both houses and go to the governor for the governor's signature. If, uh, if even if Republicans retain control of one or both houses, the Democrats will get a say-so because Northam could veto a, a exactly. map that the Republicans drew if it's quote-unquote too Republican.
Well, and you think about it, between targeted litigation and that actual veto, I mean, they both form a kind of veto, if not an outright one. I think the idea being, okay, let's let's keep Republicans from drawing all, the maps for a few more years. It's all, it's, all about, it's, all, it's all about gaining influence over the process. And yeah. uh, with, with an eye towards ultimately, you know, if you can take it in the long run, great. Um, and then, and then, of course, then you're at the whim of you're at the whim of the winds of the political winds. However, they should blow. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and YouTube, where you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.